call spoofing, it's still a problem, cloud attacks, and facial recognition no-nos. All that and more on the Naked Security Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. I am Doug. He is Paul. We have a fun-filled show for you today, and we'd like to start the show with a fun fact. And the fun fact for today is, while ebooks are as popular as ever nowadays, they've been around for a whopping 50 years already. The first book to be digitized, not really a book per se, but the U.S. Declaration of Independence, digitized way back in 1971. I thought you were going to say in 1776 for a moment. <laughs> way back. So we will talk a little bit more about ebooks later in the show in our This Week in Tech History segment, but I thought that was a good fun fact to start us off with, Paul, and uh, something that's also been around for seemingly 50 years, call spoofing. Still a problem, still way too easy, with no meaningful solution in sight. This is depressing. Sadly, that seems to be the case, Douglas. The latest story that we've covered on Naked Security was inspired by the fact that none other than the US Securities and Exchange Commission recently published a warning about a warning about a warning. They've been doing this for years and years and years of investment scammers who are not just calling you up and saying, hello, I'm with the SEC. They're calling up and making the number that appears on your caller ID or your CLI display, incoming call number, making that into an actual SEC number and then identifying themselves as being from the SEC. Like if you doubt my veracity, go and check the number that I called you from. And if you do, even if you're really careful, if you do all your due diligence, you will find that the number is correct because the protocol for injecting that number into the call data stream, if you like, before you answer the call, has zero authentication. And without authentication, there's basically no identification. Well, it might be from this person, might not. I think the, the ultimate solution is we just have to remember every time we answer a call, no matter how many times you've answered a call before and it really was the person whose number came up on the display, we just have to take that as a suggestion, nothing more than a suggestion. So it's kind of like the return address on the back of an old snail mail letter. The sender gets to write whatever they want on there. So that's what we need to remember. It's handy to assume it might be true. And then if you can satisfy yourself it is true, hey, it is your dad calling. It is your favourite auntie. It is one of your kids calling from school to say they missed their lift. What should they do? That's fine. But in terms of identifying the person, caller ID doesn't identify the caller. And calling line identification, as we call it in the UK, doesn't even identify the line that's calling you because it could be any number or name in there that the caller likes. And as the SEC says in their statement, they say, listen, and this is true of uh, many government entities here in the US. I don't know how it is in the UK, but they said, we don't, we don't call people. We are not going to unsolicit. We're not going to call you about anything. We're not going to send you an email. We're not going to send you a text message. So if someone's calling, saying that they're from the SEC, I've been audited on my taxes. They don't call you. They send you a very official-looking package in the mail, and it says you're being audited, and you open it up, and there's all the details about what you did wrong on your tax forms. So they, they, they generally communicate via snail mail. And as the SEC points out, if they were to call you, 
they wouldn't say, "Hey, let's talk about your investments. Let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about fraud. Why don't you tell me your bank account number?" Yeah. In the same way that the bank wouldn't do that and so forth. The only real solution is that if you think you need to call the SEC, then you have to go out of your way to find that number in a legitimate way, not believing what somebody called you up and, and told you was true. Of course, in some parts of the world, like in the UK, unfortunately, it's kind of advantageous, particularly if you have like a prepaid mobile phone, it would be advantageous if Her Majesty's government were to call you because they'd be paying the charges. <laughs> because when you call back in the UK, you often don't get toll-free numbers. We don't have quite as much toll-free largesse as you do in North America. And a lot of companies use what are called non-geographical numbers. They typically start 0-3. And basically, it's like the cost of a local call. But if you have to be 45 minutes on hold, you're still paying for it. So there is a reason in some parts of the world where people go, okay, I'm kind of happy that you called me because it's not going to burn up all my pay-as-you-go credit on my phone. But A, it ain't going to happen. And B, even if it did happen, you couldn't rely on the number. And even if it did happen and you could rely on the number, the person calling you, if they were from the SEC, wouldn't ask you any of the questions or go through any of the dialogue or any of the rigmarole that the scammers do. Yeah, so, the, so th this uh, message from the SEC, they, they say that we, we, we won't call and ask about your shareholdings, account numbers, PIN numbers, passwords, or any other information that may be used to access your financial accounts, which that stands to reason that that would be an odd thing for someone from the SEC to be asking of you. And it seems that the modern scammers are doing this in order to get traction with things like cryptocurrency. And I think a lot of people think, oh, cryptocurrency, it's not regulated. Golly, you never get your money back. Oh, well, if the SEC's onto it, we've read of cases where the FBI got stolen bitcoins back. Maybe this is a thing. I can't afford to miss out. So be careful of believing what you wish to hear rather than listening for the truth. Okay, and we've got some advice here, aside from using common sense. I mean, we, 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 you talk about here, if someone says, check the caller ID, if you don't believe me, that's a sure sign that they're lying. And then... Uh, Absolutely, that's really important. Instantly, you know they're lying, because that cannot possibly be true. Don't say another word, hang up, if someone says that. Okay, and then uh, we've given this advice before, but if you need to contact someone, don't rely on them contacting you and giving you the number to call them back. You should exactly call them on your own using a document that you have already or the back of your credit card. You call using, using the official phone number that you have in your possession. Yes, or that could be a, a letter that you got through the snail mail when you first find, signed up for the service, something that well predates the current caller. For them to make my bank's number show up when they call me, they can easily do that once they've learned how, or they can sign up for a service that will help them do it without understanding the technical details. It is as easy to someone who knows how to spoof an incoming phone number as it is to put somebody else's name in the from field of an email header. All right, that is U.S. government securities watchdog spoofed by investment scammers. Don't fall for it on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. Now let's talk about cloud attacks. The good news is that you have about one minute to protect yourself from these cloud attacks, right, Paul? Well, it depends on the nature of the attack. A couple of years ago, when we did some research into how quickly we'd be found, in this case, we were using RDP and SSH. RDP actually did better than SSH. I think RDP, the first probe we got on our first honeypot, 
was it 84 seconds? Yep. Uh, with SSH, it was under a minute. <laughs> mm-hmm. Remember that these are servers that we had gone out of our way not to advertise. There was no domain name. There was no DNS entry for them. We weren't actually using them for anything. So there was no sense of any crook figuring, hey, that looks interesting enough to look into. This is just people going, let's scan the internet over and over and over and over and over again until we find somewhere that we know how to break in, and then let's go and see what we can do. So in real life, the situation would be worse because you'd have the automated scan, rescan, re, 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 rescan crooks going after you, and you'd have crooks that went, hey, I see this this website turned up in a list of new interesting websites on the subject of X. We're interested in exploiting X. Let's go and take a look. And so Google just published a report. Uh, Apparently, it's the first edition of a report called Cloud Threat Intelligence. I I never knew Google was a cloud company, really, Doug. (laughs) (laughs) So I was surprised that this was the first edition. But what was interesting is they were confirming kind of what we've all known for years about the speed with which crooks will get in. But what was particularly interesting is that in this case, it's clear that there are whole gangs of crooks, cyber criminal operators, who apparently don't have an interest in the sort of attack that leads through that whole sequence of stuff that usually ends in ransomware. The goal here, I think, was it in 86% of the cases, well, they knew in advance what they wanted to do. They were getting in, there's no other processes running, crypto mining instantly before anyone else can steal the stolen CPU from them. And you can see why this is something that is more interesting to that kind of crook than, say, to a ransomware crook. Because if you've got a cloud service that you've set up and you've just got it sitting there, it's got no data in it, it's just a server waiting at low cost to you, Mm -hmm. maybe just a few dollars a month, and you've got it ticking over there, and you know that if your business takes off, you won't have time to order new servers, but you won't mind paying, even paying over the odds compared to buying your own servers if your business takes off to fund the fact that you're now paying to service that business on the server. So that's quite a useful part of the cloud server model, isn't it? Yes. That you don't have to put in a massive amount of capital expenditure and then make sure that you load up all your servers from the word go. You can have them sitting there waiting, comparatively low cost, and the idea is that when you need to start paying the fees, as high as they might be, you know that the only reason the load went up is you got the business to balance it, unless the person who put the load on there was somebody who was not sharing the revenue with you, e.g. a crypto miner. I may not notice, if I'm not paying attention to the alerts, I might not know that this we've scaled up a bunch of servers to mine cryptocurrency until I get my first bill. Or until you get a <laughs> a phone call from your credit card company. Yeah. And you, oh, caller ID, credit card company. Oh, well, <laughs> And in this case, it might be, hey, do you realize you're really, really close to your limit? What? How can that be? And then you go and look and realize somebody has been mining out on your dime, as it were. Mm-hmm. That was a not incredibly successful pun, Doug. <laughs> close enough. Thank you. The good news is that we've solved the weak password problem, so this is no longer the way that uh, the crooks are getting in so easily, right? Yes, that's the good news in this report. As Google explained, the number of these particular crypto mining-centric break-ins, the percentage of them that 
relied on weak passwords was no longer an absolute majority, Doug. <laughs> it was merely 48% of the time. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, next down the list was 26%, and that was, you're never going to guess this, Doug, you forgot the patch. Oh, no. And you've got a vulnerability that the crooks can detect because the version of the servers you're running are wandering at will. So, yeah, that's the, that's the disappointing side to this. I suppose some people, cynics might say, oh, well, Google would love to offload the responsibility on the users. But to be fair to them in this case, that 48% of attacks based on weak passwords, Google admitted that a special sort of weak password was no password. And of course, that these days, that doesn't just include username, your name, password, enter. It also includes things like API access tokens, where you're supposed to make a connection to do a one-time online service. And in this case, what Google is saying is people are setting up that kind of what's called a RESTful service, API-based service. And maybe they still think they're in debugging phase, or maybe they just forgot. And there's a way that you can come in without providing any access token whatsoever. So you don't need to log in first to get the access token that lets you log in second. You just come straight in, no authentication required. And that can be an expensive mistake. Okay, so what can people do to protect their cloud instances in this instance? Well, it is all tried and tested advice, Doug. But as you've said before, it bears repeating because... Clearly, there are loads of people who aren't doing it right if 48% of these attacks were passwordless or unauthenticated API visits. Pick proper passwords, use password managers, use 2FA whenever you can so the password alone is not enough, and patch early, patch often. I think at this point, Doug, it's worth mentioning that although 86% of incursions, crypto mining happened, there were plenty of other things that these automated were going to go in and start abusing your servers right away, crooks wanted to do. And those included things that, although they might not cost you quite as much money as crypto mining, as far as I can tell, because they're not hammering the CPU flat out or filling up your disk massively and immediately, they're things that leave you looking bad in a way that's very hard to reverse. And those things include scanning for the next cybercrime victims from your account, so you're left looking like the bad guy, like the criminal hacker, actively attacking other people off your account, including mounting DDoS distributed denial of service attacks. So again, you're left as the source of actual attacks that show up in other people's logs. And of course, using you as a spam sending cannon so that when somebody gets added to the block list, it's not the crooks, it's you. So you're carrying the can for them, the finger's pointing at you first and foremost, and if you don't mind, you're paying for it. And last but not least, uh, you can invest in proactive cloud security protection. Now, neither Paul nor I are in sales, so I don't know if I'm giving the correct pitch here. but tell? We, <laughs> we do have... We do I have, take that as a badge of honor, Doug. Yeah, I'm, very proud I, uh, to I'm not good at asking people for money, but we, we do have cloud security solutions. And uh, I do like how you ended this post. You can think of it like uh, cloud security is the best sort of altruism because you're protecting yourself. And in doing so, you're protecting others who could, other, who could otherwise get DDoSed or spammed or malware from your 
account. So it's a good way to uh, protect yourself and others at the same time and stop this problem before it starts. Absolutely. Okay, that is cloud security. Don't wait until your next bill to find out about an attack on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And it is time for This Week in Tech History. Well, we talked about ebooks at the top of the show. And this week, on December 1st, 1971, a man named Michael Hart launched Project Gutenberg, the first provider of free electronic books. Hart believed that, quote, literature should be as free as the air we breathe. Fifty years later, Project Gutenberg is still alive and kicking at Gutenberg.org, where more than 60,000 free ebooks are available. Double fun fact for this week. The most popular book on the site, Frankenstein, or The Modern Prometheus, by Mary Shelley, with almost 85,000 downloads. I, I, I'm going to mention this. It has nothing to do with cybersecurity. Of course, Mary Shelley, uh, I think it may have been after she wrote Frankenstein, or maybe just before, was married to Percy Bysshe Shelley, the only figure in English literature, as the ever-witty Bill Bryson has it, who has a, a name based on the sound of a burning match being immersed in water. <laughs> I told you it had nothing to do with cybersecurity. Yeah. Although, when they were doing their ghostwriting competition, uh, they, were, they were on some vacation, apparently, and it was raining. And I think it was the, the, the infamous Lord Byron was staying with them. And he said, hey, let's, let's all see who can write the best ghost story. And of course... Mary Shelley was, was the one that sort of conquered time, as Project Gutenberg shows. And he, of course, was the father of Ada Lovelace, regarded by many people as the first person to have a computer program published. Yes. And she was quite interested in the idea of what we now call artificial intelligence and can machines think, something that had to wait another hundred years before Alan Turing got onto the case. And of course, you can imagine that she would have been influenced in that by the ethical and moral dilemmas introduced by Mary Shelley in Frankenstein. And as I said, she was the wife of Percy Shelley. Well, that is a great segue also to our next story about AI. Well, thank you, Doug. I was wondering whether I'd get away with that, but you saved me. Thank you so much. Facial recognition, and uh, this is a heartbreaking story, according to the CEO of the company that's getting fined some $20 million for improper use <laughs> oh, Doug, of facial Doug, recognition. My heart's crying, man. Yeah. They don't want my technology. Uh, can I jump bad. to the end and sure. say, cry me a river? <laughs> <laughs> don't act like you don't know it. Yes, this is good old Clearview AI again. I get where they're coming from. It's not inherently a bad idea what they've done, but the way they've gone about it has got everybody's backs up, including most social networking beer moths. If you haven't heard of Clearview, the simple story is they go out and scrape what they consider public, and I'm making giant air quotes, images where there's some kind of idea of who's in the image, like the data about the names in the image, and they've built this facial recognition database that they say has 10 billion, as in 10,000 million images, categorized images in it. And even though they didn't have permission to download these images from services like Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, in fact, they were told, 
to stop because it was against terms and conditions of service, they still think this is a fantastic tool, provided that they sell it only to, even bigger air quotes, the right people, by which we assume they mean law enforcement. And the idea is that way, instead of having to compare an image from, say, CCTV or surveillance camera or a street camera with known mugshots, the idea is, well, you can go to this 10 billion pre-categorized images and just find people. Apparently, as long as you solve a few crimes, apparently, Doug, that makes it all worthwhile. You did put it, I was trying to think of a diplomatic way to put it, and you put it diplomatically when you started talking about this, that I get where they're coming from, but this is not, not the right way to do it. No, particularly since, I think this was early 2020, a whole load of social networking sites, I think that, as I mentioned, that at least included Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, actually said, cease and desist, you can't do this. It's against our terms and conditions of service. And you, know, you kind of think Facebook, <laughs> the company that everyone loves to hate, they've already got these images. They've got them with permission. There are terms and conditions involved. And whether you like them or not, they are there. If Facebook itself has decided, nah, we're not going to do this. It's a step too far. And then says, cease and desist. You think that you go, okay, this is not going to go well. But apparently the, the CEO... Well, not apparently, it's an interview. You can, there's a YouTube copy of it, a, an interview with CBS News. The CEO said, we have a First Amendment right to public information. And so we built our system by taking only publicly available information and indexing it. As though the fact that something is public means that it no longer counts as personally identifiable information or that there is not a previous expectation that the uploader might have of some kind of agreement with the person who's publishing the data. Okay, in the UK and Australia, this caught the ire of both those. Yes, so they figured, well, First Amendment, well, you have one of those, we don't. And as a commenter on that video very reasonably said, you were so preoccupied with whether or not you could do this, you didn't stop to think whether you should. And that's, I think that's the way a lot of people feel about this. And so the UK and Australia decided they'd, if you like, do a, a joint investigation. The Office of the Australian Information Commissioner, OAIC, and the UK Information Commissioner's Office did this joint investigation, and they have just recently published their respective reports. The one thing that both of those Privacy Commission offices agree on is that, in their opinion, what Clearview did was they basically collected information using unlawful or unfair means. And in the words of the UK Information Commissioner's Office, they did not process information in a way that people would reasonably expect them to. Yes, that part's interesting. Like I upload my photos to Facebook and I, I assume that they're going to be used on, on Facebook and maybe Facebook's going to make money off them some way, but I don't, I don't expect them to be scraped for a law enforcement database. And importantly, the ICO in the UK made the point that not only did they connect, collect the data without a lawful reason, not only did they collect it where people might reasonably have expected them not to do so, not only did they have no process where people could say, I, don't, I want you to stop doing that and get rid of all my existing data, because it's your face and they're indexing your face, it counts as biometric data, and actually there should be even higher standards that they were supposed to stick to, which they did not. 
And then importantly, the last point that the ICO made, basically, they didn't tell anyone what was happening to their data. So that was felt to be entirely unacceptable. The Aussies said, don't do it again, which sounds a little bit like toothless tigery. But then they also said, and any data collected from Oz, delete. And within 90 days, show us you've done what you're supposed to do. No excuses. The UK pretty much said the same thing. But instead of saying, and within 90 days, prove it, they said, and our plan is that we will fine you 17 million pounds, which is about 23 million US dollars. And the CEO of Clearview, Doug, as he said, claims that he is heartbroken. Mm. Breaks my heart that you don't want to use the data for this wonderful purpose. I imagine it probably breaks his heart that you might have to pay 17 million quid. Yeah, there's um, that. But he's, oh, golly, I'm, I'm, I'm weeping inside. Doug, I want to save the world and you won't let me. <laughs> That's what he thinks, but it does seem that it's not what many jurisdictions in the world think. And if you have an opinion on this, we would love to hear it. So head over to Naked Security and let us know what you think. You may, as always, remain anonymous if you wish. All right. That is controversial. Face matchers. Clearview set to be fined over $20 million. And it's time in the show for the Oh No. And on Reddit, user Mike Oxenfair writes, Some years ago, I worked in an educational establishment. One of the many jobs I undertook was to rebuild a, a sequel. Oh, he says an SQL. There's, there's a very uh, hard line drawn between do you pronounce it SQL or SQL with the inventor saying sequel. it should be SQL and then um, people later on say SQL. Okay, I'm just going to say SQL then. I, I said SQL for a long time. I've gone back and forth. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to SQL though. I undertook was to rebuild a SQL database that had been so badly designed that it had failed after five years. I didn't think that was possible, but anyway. Do you think that's meant to be a light-hearted comment, Doug, given <laughs> the number of IT projects that never actually ship? Yeah, <laughs> Where seriously. The, the, the database fails before it even starts. Five years, that's actually, that's not, that's not bad, is it? Practically long-lived. Yeah, well, yeah. By some standards. I guess what he was saying, I've never been asked to, I've never been asked to replace a database in less than 45 years. Yes, yeah, there's some out there that lived far too long. <laughs> yeah, older than ebooks out there. So I had to rebuild all the various functions and add a few more using Excel, but I replaced a lot of the code in a manner that would be sort of future proofed. To do this, I had to test the functionality, but the data was all subject to data protection law. There's an easy fix for testing. At least he recognized that. Yes. Unlike some people in this episode. Exactly. <laughs> The, the head of school or the principal wanted an update, so I shared a data set, and she accused me of revealing sensitive data, a fireable offense, until I pointed out the names in the data set. Harry Potter, Darth Vader, Billy Nomates, and so on. All dummy data. Well, I didn't get fired as there was no data protection issue and finished the project about a month later. Good times. That's great advice to people using dummy data sets. Make sure you use dummy data. Don't use real data. Or pseudo-anonymized data where the anonymization can be worked backwards because you've just shifted all the letters around or something yeah. like that and not, not scrambled or hashed it properly. Even just sharing it internally, you can get in trouble. I'm mystified by the idea of a database. Presumably, it's, I'm imagining it's like if it's a school current teachers or contemporary students 
if not current, maybe of recent years, that you would you would have a school where Harry Potter and Darth Vader <laughs> attended the same school at roughly the same time. But I suppose all things are possible. Yep. And our friend Billy Nomates, who I have not heard as a, a dummy user, but it sounds like he has no friends. That's tough. You'll go far, Doug. Okay. <laughs> with, with, with detective instincts like that. Perfect. All right, just in case I need to fall back on a detective <laughs> here. It's a private eye. Well, if you have an no-no you'd like to submit, we'd love to read it on the podcast. You can email tips at sophos.com. You can comment on any one of our articles, or you can hit us up on social at Naked Security. That is our show for today. Thanks very much for listening. For Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Ameth, reminding you, until next time, too... Stay, Stay secure. secure.